Welcome to We Are Homeless, the podcast that explores the pursuit of shelter by everyday people in the Bay Area. My name is Adam Garrett-Clark, and I've been living out of an off-grid home on wheels for the last five years. Once you drive down this rabbit hole, you push past the status overpass, hang a left on Frugality Road, and take a soft right down Technology Lane, you discover a number of interesting people living in interesting situations. This podcast is designed to let people in on these hidden housing alternatives that many of us believe will eventually be a legitimate part of our housing future. But today, unfortunately, our laws, culture, and narratives have not caught up with our basic human necessities for shelter. So here in the Bay Area, we are homeless. The moonlight sleeping on the midnight day. We are homeless. 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 The moonlight sleeping on the midnight day. So you got that nice job, plenty of cash in the bank. You want you you found a beautiful tiny house you want to buy easy fifty grand no problem. Land all right let me see the options I got it. You're still not ready to live tiny today. That's my next guest problem, Marilyn Wait. Awesome job full of purpose with Hewlett Foundation and a dream to live sustainably in the bay with options when she wants to leave um before we get into it i just want to give a little update this interview happened uh about a year ago in 2018 and uh i ended up uh, connecting her with a previous guest uh rebecca gorman and if you've been listening that long thank you uh but uh please check out episode two with rebecca gorman your uh community intentional community real estate agent and gorman was uh looking for high and low for a place for uh miss wait to put her potential tiny home and uh i just got an update that she ended up just scrapping the whole thing and buying a condo so there you go enjoy the show okay mr paul simon Somebody sing, somebody sing, hello, hello, hello. Hello, Marilyn White. Wait. Oh, let's <laughs> do that again. Hello, Marilyn Wait. Hello. Um, and thank you for, for doing this podcast with me. Um, so we just t- had a great conversation and I wish we could have uh, had recorded that. But um, I'm trying to think where we should start. I think I want to tell people who you are. Um, so where are you from and why are you here in the Bay? Ah, where I'm from is very complicated, but essentially I'm a global citizen. I have lived in 10 countries, have three nationalities, but most recently I was in Washington, D.C. So I'm coming from the East Coast and I moved in January 2018 to the Bay Area. And you moved for a job, right? Where do you work? I work at the Hewlett Foundation, so I work on climate and clean energy finance, trying to mobilize the capital we need to solve climate change. Ah, okay, all right. So you're you're trying to figure out um, financial tricks to to raise money to finance, like what, like uh, solar energy and the uh, 
Elon Musk's uh, Hyperloop? Or <laughs> so essentially, we need one trillion U.S. dollars and more globally and annually to solve climate change. And those solutions include sequestering carbon in the soils, um, renewable energy, solar, wind, geothermal, in-stream hydropower, clean transportation, so electric vehicles, mass transit. And so how we get the, ca the capital we need to actually um, solve these uh, different challenges through the climate lens is what I'm focusing on. And so pretty much following the money, how much capital is available in these different pools available, both in public and pi private financing, and how to mobilize that for the climate solutions. Okay, and and Hewlett, is Hewlett Packard, they make computers? What do they do? I, I don't know. Tell me, what does Hewlett do and how are, how are they involved in all this? So it is the H of HP um, and it is the private uh, money of the Hewlett family. So it's a private foundation. So we are a private non-operating foundation uh, focusing on a number of issues from education to performing arts and environment. And so environment is probably the biggest part of what the Hewlett Foundation does and climate change uh, is a key pillar of that. So we're all in on solving climate change. Wow, that's really cool. Okay, so this is kind of like the Bill Gates Foundation trying to solve big problems with private money and, and fundraising or, or a little bit of both. And and that money No is fundraising, okay. just just pure funding. Okay. So we have nine roughly nine billion assets under management that we maximize each year so we can spend five percent of that each year. So we are pure funder. Um According to IRS regulations, it's really a private, non-operating foundation. So non-operating meaning our, we exist to fund other things. Wow. Okay. So part of your job is how do you grow the money that Hewlett Foundation has to be able to tackle these big climate change problems? Is that right? <laughs> Not quite. Um, so the, the role really is about uh, funding ways of capitalizing more more capital. So um, to give you some examples, there are different market failures in different parts of the world that inhibit more capital from flowing to the solutions. So um, I'm working in China and in India and in the European Union and United States trying to tackle these market failures and in many different ways, um, whether it's de-risking pools of capital. So some investors view clean energy and climate solutions as risky. So there's a perceived risk out there. And so to de-risk that, um, some of our capital can be used to kind of provide some kind of concessionary guarantee uh, to private investors so that they can feel more comfortable investing in these solutions. And then when they're successful, more capital will then be allocated now that we've proven the concept. So we can demonstrate that actually you can uh, have a profitable investment portfolio with climate solutions. Wow, that's brilliant. I love that. Okay, it's almost like uh, you guys are putting that extra money and time into like starting the flywheel. And then once it gets going, then everybody else comes in, you remove all the friction, and then it just runs itself. Exactly. That is the. That's beautiful. Concept. And I feel like we need that in this housing world as well. So hopefully you have some insights that can cross over but before we get there i wanted to explore which we didn't talk about at breakfast your three nationalities so <laughs> what, what are your what are your three nationalities and how did you do that 
Um, I'm, you have to guess, actually. Oh man! All right. Well, I'm gonna go with American. <laughs> um, you did mention Paris while we were talking, so I'm gonna say French. Oh, you're two for three. Nice. And then you are a black woman, so I'm gonna. <laughs> but there's a lot of countries. There's in a lot of options there, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and I, you know, it's really just a shot in the dark. So I'm gonna go with um, South Africa. No, I, although I did live in South Africa. Nope. All right, one more. Um, Libya? <laughs> no. Wrong continent. Oh, uh, Haiti. Closer. Oh. French Guyana? No. You're thinking Francophone. It's more of an Anglophone country. Belize? <laughs> no. Much closer to Haiti. <laughs> oh, uh, closer to Haiti... Okay, we're talking about the, the Caribbean. The best cuisine in the world, the best music in the world. Oh, are we talking about Jamaica? Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> All right, so Jamaican, French, and American. Cool combination. Lucky you. So what, did you have You had a parent from each, and then you grew up in the third? Is I'll that leave that as a mystery. <laughs> All right. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> But but you said you were a citizen of the world, and that's and that's interesting also because you've seen how housing is done all over, and and you kind of outlined um, how it should be done from a a climate change or thinking about how to efficiently house people um, and use the least amount of resources, and you you came to some um, scenarios in other countries that work well. Could you kind of elaborate on that? So I think I was essentially saying we need to delete the U.S. suburban lifestyle <laughs> and that really what we need is, is to support rural communities and urban communities. And so really reducing our ecological footprint, if everyone had a single family home that is typical in the U.S. suburb, then we would need about 10 planets. So that's not viable. It's not sustainable. And so for a place like Oakland, where we are right now, um, really having densified multi-story buildings close to mass transit is the way to go. And that's the way Paris runs, that's the way Shanghai runs. And I was kind of comparing the two and their population differences and the m amount of stories they have available. But that those are you know lovely places to live for many different reasons. And they combine beautiful aesthetics with the natural environment, with kind of the urban aesthetic as well. And I think Definitely, if you're living in those communities, you are contributing more to sustainability because you have a lower ecological footprint. Right, right. And that's, so you, you pointed to a couple key points. I think it's also important to note, right, that um, it's not just like build tall because you can go too tall and you can you can create these. I lived in a, in a building in Australia, in Melbourne, that was like, I don't know, like, really really tall uh, many floors maybe 20 floors right and you chicago just, style yeah you i was up on the top very high floor you feel weird up there there's some <laughs> i don't know what it is but get going high, that high up the air is drier um and uh you, there's also a lot of alienation that can come in some of these t high rises where you just you don't you don't interact with all these people in your building and that's part of the design but i think um it's 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 that middle ground right it's like not single fam single story single family homes uh but also not these high rises it's maybe like that sweet spot is like three or four or five floors right and that's what paris and shanghai do well P 
Paris does it very well. Um, actually, a lot of European cities. Washington, D.C. also does it quite well. Um, a lot of these places have restrictions. Um, in Washington, D.C., it's around the monument. In Paris, it's around the Eiffel Tower of high how, you c how, how high you can build. Um, and so that has contributed, I think, to making it a pleasant place to live. And there's this thing called charm as well and sense of community um, that is prevalent in those, in those locations as well. Um, so in absence of that, I think tiny homes really provide this opportunity to live within a low ecological footprint. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, before we get to that, I, I think it's also important your point about the aesthetics, because I, I tend to gloss over that and just <laughs> think about efficiency, you know, and like aesthetics are always subjective. Right. Sure. Uh, but your point is it's, it's well taken. I don't know if you can maybe elaborate on that a little bit. I mean, like I, I really think a real efficient way to create cheap housing is to just buy up like old 70s RVs that are you can get them for like two grand or less sometimes and fix them up. But there is an aesthetic aversion to that. I, I th like how do you walk that line if you if you could about creating the uh, the aesthetics, but thinking about the efficiency of, of what you're designing? Right, so I think you, you definitely can have both. I'm also a, a big fan of energy efficiency. It's one of the best ways we can actually solve climate change is through efficiency, efficiency in industry and, and everything else in our buildings. So you can build efficient um, structures using reusing existing structures, and I think that's the part that makes it sustainable, um, reusing materials. Um, it is subjective, but when you enter an art museum, you have different kinds of arts, and yet people are attracted to it and people feel something. Um, I think it's more, I mean, there are different senses, right? The five senses. Um, and it's not only visual, it's about the way it makes you feel. Um, it's about um, even how it interacts with the natural environment um, and enabling, for example, if you have a green roof on a structure um, or a green deck that enables more wildlife to come through. Um, and so, and that creates, you know, more hearing. So I think really going towards the five senses um, just creates this better quality of life. And so aesthetics is important in that way. Yeah. And so, like, if we could just, like, totally redo Oakland and a lot of other places in the Bay Area, we would try to erect, like, more of this model that we see that you, you reference in Paris where there's, like, probably four stories or so and there's yeah. – communal feel and you still maintain those aesthetics but that's not going to happen anytime right. soon <laughs> and so what we were talking about is the tiny houses are is a nice kind of second choice to create some of that sustainable um home systems that are lacking right now I, th I feel like in some of these older victorians that just like guzzle through water and are using fossil fuels to run the energy i mean maybe maybe you could talk a little bit more about some of the sustainability um, arguments for tiny homes. Right, so the tiny house that I'm currently looking at is 250 square feet, um, and that's just a low ecological footprint, and I'm looking at it for at least two people in that home, and that's a, a two-bedroom, so including a loft and a, a downstairs bedroom. So you could technically have um, four people in that amount. and. It's absolutely gorgeous. It, it uh, ties in well to nature because it's wood-based. Um, and so really, it's that ecological footprint. Um, and then you can incorporate 
other aspects of environmental stewardship. So you can have a composting toilet, um, so you don't have the wasting drinking water, uh, flushing perfectly good water uh, down, down the drain, especially in a place like California that has drought um, that will only become worse with climate change. Um, and you can also go off-grid, so you can incorporate uh, solar panels with storage, lithium-ion battery systems, for example. Um, they now have technology where you can convert the air uh, into water for drinking. You can incorporate rainwater harvesting also. And so there are all these ways to really kind of become one with nature um, and be more mindful and respectful of, of um, the natural environment. Um, and also lower your own bills at the same time, um, have a more affordable style of living and spending the capital you have on the things that you really care about. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So oh, you're just make, getting me so excited to talk <laughs> about so many different things, but I want to go back to your, um, your starting point here in the Bay. You, you told me that you were offered this job and, um, it sounds like it's a really fun job and pays decent, but, uh, they, had a struggle to find somebody in a way to take it on. And you even thought twice about it because of the housing situation that you'd be thrown into. Maybe you could articulate a little bit more about that. It's definitely a challenge. So I'm um, recruiting talent, recruiting uh, people to come to the Bay area to join companies is a challenge because of the expense. Um, and it is uh, probably the, the, number one deterrent for, for folks to come to the Bay Area and definitely to stay in the Bay Area. Um, so definitely it's it's a challenge. Um, right now I'm living in downtown Redwood City. actually quite like it. They've densified it. Um, they're in the process of densifying it. I'm a two blocks away from the Caltrain stop. But there is no BART station, and that's that means I can't get around much. Um, the how Caltrain rarely runs. <laughs> and how much are you paying in rent? I'm... Well, I'm paying over 2K, okay. um, which a lot of people still think is on the affordable side. Yeah. Um, it's a one-bedroom apartment, and it is does not have any kind of washer dryer in unit, um, no air, AC, um, pretty basic, It's, it, but it is extremely convenient. I am car-free, um, and so uh, at least I can walk to the amenities, and I can walk to the Caltrain, and I can uh, cycle um, to work uh, sometimes. So it provides that, but that is considered extremely affordable. Right, but you, and you were like, you and other people, when you entertain this like high-paying job that is doing great work, you're like, I don't think I want it because I'm going to get stuck in this really crazy housing situation and have to pay, you know, even two grand is a lot. I mean, yeah, I, I just... Uh, I just wanted to drive that point home. That's just a really interesting point that you would actually consider turning down a really awesome job because of the housing situation that it's placed in. Oh, absolutely. And that's, I can only make it work kind of because um, I don't have kids. So my husband and I, um, uh, we can live in a one-bedroom apartment for now, um, but with kids that doesn't quite work. And so it becomes harder and harder and almost impossible for families to do this um and yeah that it's de it's definitely the number one complaint that people have um at the foundation and i think in in other um other parts of the economy it's uh, you know you hear about teachers and um 
uh, public servants, so on and so forth, uh, even those, you know, with dual income, high income, they could be in the top 5% of the U.S. kind of income brackets, and they still cannot make it work. Yeah, and, and I mean, why couldn't you do, could you do a lot of this, like, remotely? Couldn't you, like, like live in, you know, Kansas City and... <laughs> yes, that would have been great. Um, no, it's uh, kind of remote working is not allowed on a, on a more than once per week basis. Um, but even the idea of, you know, completely remote, so working in a different city is not allowed. I think a lot of, some companies allow it and some companies uh, would like to have people come into the office. So it is definitely something I think that, uh, has to evolve if the affordability of housing in the Bay Area does not evolve. And has, has Hewlett looked at trying to create their own housing, kind of like some of the other Silicon Valley companies? Not that they are, but other companies have been thinking about that. I think they have looked into it. Right now, um, nothing has come through. Um, but definitely, I mean, whenever there's an employee survey or you know there's open suggestions, this is the number one thing. Um, uh. So it's not like it's not known and uh there isn't brainstorming about solutions but it's just very difficult to find solutions in the current um uh landscape of the bay area um right so you decided to take a chance to, to take a plunge and figure it out anyway um and we're glad that you did and part of your workaround is tiny homes can you talk a little bit i mean you already articulated why they they work uh for you potentially how did you first hear about them and and um and maybe tell us about the one that you're you're considering buying so i have a few friends that are into tiny homes one couple in particular they have their tiny home in los altos on the peninsula in the bay area and I think when I visited them, I was absolutely sold. So I've lived in very small flats before, so I haven't really been a space uh, hog. Uh, but I think being in one, seeing others live in them, really brings it to home and uh, shows that it's feasible. Can you tell us about your friend's setup? Because that's really interesting. Yeah, so they have uh, a tiny home on someone's lot. Uh, so there's a kind of a, a larger home on the on the land, and they have their tiny home on the land as well. Um, I don't know the square footage, but it's I'm sure it's about 250 square feet. Well, let's back up a sec. So they had they had their home, and they you said that they were flyering the neighborhood looking for a place to put it, and they found this this group that owns this house that is just renting it out on Airbnb, and so they were like, sure, yeah, we'll rent out our backyard to you too, right? Yeah, so they lucked out and they found kind of a, a hippie Silicon Valley person who was already renting out their main house on Airbnb, and uh, so they weren't permanently living living in the house, and they had the land available, and the owner was like, sure, why not? We can make this work, and so they had the water hookups and utilities and um, the necessary to make it happen, and so they, yes, this couple, they would pass out flyers, get, they would go door to door, they would apply to... Um, like Craigslist listings and Airbnb. Some people would not like <laughs> them reaching out on Airbnb, but others would just politely say, you know, say that it wasn't of interest. 
Um, but they kept going, and after five months, they found a spot. Wow, yeah, it's hard. But that's 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 a good model, the flyering, just plastering. I mean, that's what I did. I also put out flyers to find my first spot in Craigslist. And mm-hmm. most of what I found was a bunch of other people like me looking for a place to put their RV or their tiny home. Yes. And so how much do you know how much they paid for it? Did they build it themselves? I think they paid about 50k for it. They already it was already listed on Craigslist, so the home was somewhere in the Bay Area. So somebody else built it yes. and they bought it from them. Okay. Right. For 50 grand. Yeah. All right. And it's it's a pretty decent build. It's lovely. It's lovely. Cool. And uh, you said it's t- 250 square feet, so I believe so. Okay. Wow. And then they're paying uh to this Airbnb uh outfit um hippies uh <laughs> how, how much 800 you said i think they're paying about 800 per month um utilities included um you know that might you know give or take a few but that's i think that's around the price and you know they were paying probably 3k for one bedroom in san jose um and you can easily pay 5k for a home um and that's on the cheaper side um in that area so so they're killing it so they <laughs> it works for them, yeah. Meanwhile, over here in Oakland, I'm like, damn, eight hundred bucks to and you own the tiny home? A lot of people I know would be like, No way, I'm not doing that deal. But right. it's it's interesting the perspective when you look at the different markets. Um, very cool. So you saw that and you were sold and now you're um considering buying one from a, a builder. So it's a fresh one. A little less of a risk, I think, than buying from a DIY builder that you know, there might be some hidden issues that you find out later. And so what's the name of the company that you're buying from? Well, one of the options I'm looking at is Backcountry Homes. They're based in Oregon. Um, They have fully off-grid models and kind of fully on-grid models. So that's one of the choices. There are many, though. Right. And... uh, and so, and how much are you, is, is the, the, the unit that you're thinking about buying? So there's a few of the, of their units that I like a lot. Um, I think the average price is around 50 K and then no more than 70 K. Right. Yeah. So a sizable chunk. Are you going to take, that's all include, that includes all the furnishing, furnishing. So refrigerator, couches. So it's turnkey. Right, which is cool, especially for someone who's relocating, right, and doesn't yeah. want to have to buy all the furniture and stuff. Um, and what's your plan for it uh, once you, you know, because you said that your job is, there's a 10-year thing, situation at your job. It's not forever. You you plan to just take it wherever life takes you? Is that part of the goal with it? So I have a, I think it gives me options, and that's what I like. So there's an eight-year term limit, and so it's not forever. I could move the home um, after the term limit. The I term limit of your job. Of my right. job, sorry, yes. And then I could also uh, sell the unit to the property owner or I could sell it to anyone else that wants um, a tiny home. And so it just provides a lot of options, really. Well said. I think one of the greatest points about this new way of looking at housing is it just opens up a lot more options. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so right now you're you're on the fence about throwing that money into it, right? Because you're going to be then stuck with this problem of where do I put it? And it's very hard, right? Exactly. So that's why I have not proceeded to obtain a tiny home. Um, I'm first starting with the land. So find a place to put it first and then find the tiny home. So there are tons of builders, tons of contractors. Um, The supply is is there. It's the supply of land (laughs) and property to put it on. That's not as easy. Um, 
Okay, maybe you could paint uh, the perfect scenario for you as far as the land. The you know how do the finances work? Is it in a community? Is it in on your own little piece of land? Is it in a backyard? Ideally, of course, I would like to open an app or uh, my web browser on my computer and go to a site and uh, find places for, for land to rent or lease or buy that are tiny home friendly. Like having that, would that's ideal. Um, that allows people to choose if they want to lease land, if it's temporary for them or rent land, or if they want to purchase land that is tiny home compliant or, reg or ready. Um, with the details on what you need for your tiny home, do you need to have certain hookups or not? And so I think that's what's missing in the marketplace right now. And I, I think the regulation is a part of that that barrier big part of it and yeah, yeah coming from your going back to your perspective as uh trying to reduce the friction and get the flywheel going and then you know the business aspect of it the fact that it's just infectiously attractive for people will take over how, how do you how do we do that in this in this um try to try to create a future where tiny houses can live in in cities i mean you just said the legality is a big piece but are there other pieces that you can see? Um, like that, that maybe maybe Hewlett could invest potentially consider investing in. <laughs> um, so really, the the policy is is what still what I see is number one. Um, though I think that the more policymakers listen to their constituencies, the more they will need to evolve the planning codes. Um, to make room for this. I actually do not see a, a financial hurdle here or an investment hurdle because there is ample demand. Um, the suppliers are there for the actual construction and, um, you know, the other part of it, so the financing, whether it's a mortgage or other kinds of, uh, you know, loans and um, insurance, those are also readily available. So the private sector is ready to go. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a caveat there that, like, there, I think there isn't really a, I've been, like, researching, there isn't really a clear financing structure for these things yet because they're still unsure if they're legal, they're still unsure if they're permitted, and people don't want to put their money into that. But, like, I think you're right. Once the that barrier of legality is finally over, you know, hurdled, then all that stuff will come fairly quickly. I think so there are a few tiny home builders that incorporate financing in their offer but I would do I do s think that their rates are quite high so mm. we're talking six eight percent okay uh, interest rates and whereas mortgage rates are around three percent so mm. that's more than double it, it kind of makes sense because of the the low cost on one hand but on the other hand there's also no reason for the for the high percentage um if you have you know multiple demand for it so i think that's because it's very nascent um kind of product out there yeah um and that it's seen more as an rv as opposed to a home right. a permanent home um but there are i would say at least in the u.s market there are some builders that have financing options with lenders available right right yeah that's a good point and were you considering doing that? Like, does your builder that you're considering are they are they going to offer financing, and is that how you would do it, or would you um, just kind of 
throw it all down? I'm not sure yet, actually, because it, it also goes back to the land. Are you going to purchase right. land and then you have one big package of a loan or do you lease the land or right. rent the land? So right. You might be able to get a, a, a mortgage that could um, allow you to pay for both the tiny home and the land, you think? Right. Yeah, that, that is an option. It could be packaged that way. Um, once again, it's it's that finding that plot. Yeah. It's the first step. Yeah. Yeah, and so I, I like how you painted that picture of the app um, that gives you those options of leasing, leasable or buyable land that's tiny house friendly. What about like once you you have that app and you're surfing, like what um, what do you think the scenario is for your tiny home that would be ideal for you? Would you want like verse you know your own piece of land? I think your own piece of land or in someone's backyard, which is kind of like your own piece of land, but you're sharing with one other big house. And then I think the third option that I see is in a community of other tiny homes on a you know in a gated lot or something. Right. Well, I I once again going back to the rural versus urban. I would try to stay away from the suburban, although, as you said, it can be difficult when you already have this infrastructure. So you might be in a suburban area and, you know, in someone's backyard, which increases the sustainability of that lot, of course. Um, but for me, it would be, you know, very ideally in a very um, bucolic place. So whether it's surrounded by trees or near water or somehow close to nature um, with other people will be great. Um, so a community like that is, is very appealing. Um, and then there's the urban um, appeal. So, and that would be also kind of a densified urban community of, of tiny homes that is near a metro stop or a subway stop. Um, those that could also work. Cool. Yeah. I'm 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 picturing like say you had two tiny homes, one in a community that was like right by the beach and kind of <laughs> a, a rural natural place and then another one in like Oakland and like right by West Oakland Bart and then you could kind of like choose between the two and have the other one be like a guest house or something. <laughs> well, if you're renting out the second perhaps, but two like an empty house somewhere is not exactly low carbon footprint. Great point. Living. <laughs> <laughs> well, what if it what if it's like rented out uh, on Airbnb and bringing you an income or sure, sure that works or you put it up for, you know, um, temporary relief housing for for like homeless families. That also works. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Cool. I think. Well, that's my dream now. I think you just gave me <laughs> a, my ideal picture. Um, I wanted to talk about actually the fourth option that I'm intrigued by as a place to put your tiny home. And that, that could be what people are already kind of pioneering just outside our fences here. You know, people that are really um, considered homeless that are parking their RVs right on, on streets um, and getting pushed around by the cops and, um, you know, getting the, the side eye from the, the homeowners nearby. But I think... Um, there could be a way to do what they are doing a little bit more organized uh, and allow for a, a much cheaper way to live. If, let's say, in the future there's less cars needed on those streets to park because of driverless cars and other public transportation, and there were some sort of uh, support services that were circulating through and pumping out their water, giving them fresh water, um, 
changing their energy uh, system, like switching out the battery. Would you want to live in a place like that? Uh, assuming that like you had some sort of like parking permit uh, and, you know, the neighbors were cool with you there and you weren't worried about cops or, or somebody breaking into your rig, but just the idea of like your house is like parked on in a parking space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think so what I'm, what I know in the tiny house movement is this kind of discouragement from even thinking about parking your tiny home on wheels in an RV park, oftentimes, and this is a, isn't exactly your question, but it's linked to it. So oftentimes there's a long waiting list for those RV park parks, and um, that list is, is filled with people who are more needy than often a tiny home um, owner or kind of someone that, you know, aspires to have this um, tiny home living and minimalist lifestyle. So I think there is there is a trade-off in terms of what places people are made are, are made available to different kind of income brackets. And so um, I guess I wouldn't want the, the tiny house the tiny house movement to displace those that are in need of um, even you know more lower income uh, housing or more even more affordable than the average tiny home could provide. So I think that, I think we have to be careful of that. Oh, that's a great point. I mean, yeah, I could, I could see like me trying to pilot this on a West Oakland street and like taking up spots that would normally be occupied by an RV person who like, like really needs that free parking spot, you know? Um, Totally great point. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm still toying with it. I but I I guess let's let's move from like whether or not you would want to do it, but you given your knowledge of sustainability and um you know, the footprint like we were exploring this offline, but um you know, is it is it uh is it better for the environment to have these homes that are untethered uh that are getting their utilities, their water and their gas and everything through a delivery system, through like a truck that's circulating through burning fossil fuels. Is that worse, better um, on a transition? You know, what do you think? The bigger picture about the the footprint that's the sustainability of that. So ideally it's best, I mean, for the footprint uh, if you're off grid. So as soon as the lithium ion battery costs come down enough um, to make it really affordable to cover all the energy needs at a household level, um, then I think the more you can go off-grid, the, the better it will be. And, of course, you can also be you know have this servicing that you're referring to. Um, and if there's enough density of tiny homes that need servicing, then it can be optimized for low carbon footprint. Right. Um, so I think that's great. I would need to do a full, you know, life cycle analysis and, and comparison um, to really answer whether it's better to have, let's say, a partially on-grid tiny home that has a propane uh, tank for cooking, let's say, uh, versus one that is um, completely off-grid but needs this servicing. Um, so you have someone in a truck coming around and servicing it. So that that would probably need, need to be calculated, but... Um, all things e- being equal, the one that's off-grid will probably be the, the best option. So we're talking about um, 
getting your energy not from the power lines that are mostly producing that energy by burning coal, right? Versus getting your energy directly from the sun through your solar panels and, and stored in a battery bank. So yeah, that's that's really the question of the day. Is the future of sustainable energy distributed or centralized? So right now in most industrialized economies, energy is decentralized, which privileges the large thermal power plants like coal, um, but are being replaced and can be replaced by utility scale solar and wind geothermal. Um, so if that grid was decarbonized, then, ide then that would also, uh, if you plugged into that grid, your on-grid is sustainable. Um, right now, that is not the case. It depends on which country you are in, of course. In France, most of that is actually low carbon, uh, but once again, depends on your grid. Um, so all things being equal, and if your grid is still quote-unquote dirty, then using off-grid solar power will be more sustainable. Right. Th you talked about decentralized and, and off-grid, or yeah, central versus decentralized energy. And the other thing uh, worth talking about is that the the system, whether whether it is decarbonized or not, there's still the issue of, of storage, right? And there's so much waste in the current grid system where they just, they have all this plentiful wind power, solar power, but they just like, they they can't hold store it so they just like don't use it um and so i feel like the argument towards decentralized energy makes a lot more sense uh because you could you have situations where people have all these solar panels they're contributing to the grid and then there's a, a malfunction in the distribution system and there's a brownout so you're actually producing energy that you can't use in your house whereas if you're off grid you know and the grid system's failing you're you're chilling watching netflix right so <laughs> the for residential use i agree that distributed decentralized makes a lot of sense for and, and maybe and that could even be at a neighborhood level or district level right you can become more and more micro so that you can share a pv system among a few dwellings in a tiny house community and, maybe in a tiny house community maybe um for industrial use, though, that is, and it depends what it is, of course, but for productive energy use, um, where you need a lot more power to manufacture goods and things like that, um, you can also have your own separate kind of commercial industrial scale unit. So it's just at a much larger scale, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. And then, yeah, so we're talking about circulating water. Uh All right. Close it off. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I guess we covered it. I just I'm I'm a little sad because we we t it was also there were so many interesting things we touched. I just want to make sure we got everything <laughs> when we were talking offline. Um any other interesting points do you think about the sustainability aspects of tiny homes or or just tiny like the advantages? Oh, there was hold that thought if you do have something. Um the other issue when just talking about connecting to the grid or not is the cost i don't know what it is in like paris uh but here connecting to the grid in a high-priced place like oakland is like could be like 20 or thirty thousand dollars just to connect to the grid if you get if you have a piece of land that's not connected um so 
that is a huge barrier. If you're thinking about buying land, a raw lot, putting your tiny house on it, you're now going to have to consider basically the cost of another tiny house to just get grid tie. And then also for water. Um, so these are big barriers that I think the, again, the circulating system could overcome. Uh, you have this nimble house that just needs to get water and energy somehow. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have a response to that, but that's, yeah, that's, I think, that's another ridiculous. point. Of I did not know that it was so pricey. I know that it's pricey to connect the sewage and perhaps even water. And if there's no row, for example, if you're looking at a place previously, um, you know, not even surveyed, um, if you need to build your own road, for example, I know that can be very pricey. Um, but that is that is very very pricey yeah. um, and a barrier. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you have any other th any other thoughts about what we've been talking about? Yeah. So I think that that's a number. Housing and transportation are, I think, collectively the number one issue in the Bay Area and in other parts of the world. But this is really. I think what will cause the area to implode and it will not matter how many jobs are available because those jobs are not covering the extremely high cost of living and they probably can't because they're in the global economy where most people are not living in this extremely um, costly place and so you can't triple the price of your product, right? So something needs to drastically happen to make the Bay Area more affordable and also um, more connected via public transportation. Mm, right, right. Cool. And I think tiny, tiny homes is definitely a first step. Um, transforming the policy to allow for tiny homes and in that they are compact, low ecological footprint structures um, that can be mobile, although not maybe not as mobile as mobile homes, but they can be um, moved, so they have this kind of dual um, purpose. I think that is a key key step and, you know, very much affordable. Um, a key step to creating a vibrant community that people will actually want to move into and stay in. Totally. Um uh, usually I ask for closing thoughts, but those sounded like pretty good closing thoughts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, where can people find you if they want to get a hold of you online? So I'm on Twitter at Wait Maryland. So W-A-I-T-E-M-A-R-I-L-Y-N. And I have my own website at MarylandWait.com. Thank you so much, Marilyn. Thanks. Homeless. Thank you for listening. The music is by Paul Simon and Lady Smith Black Mambasso from the Graceland album, one of the greatest albums of all time. This podcast is inspired by the work of Tiny Logic. For more information, visit tinylogic.ninja. While this song is super beautiful, let's stop singing it.